Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and for this episode, I'm very lucky to have with me Briar Lipson, uh, Research Fellow at the New Zealand Initiative. Welcome, Briar. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. I understand um, that you were a, a maths teacher and assistant principal in London before uh, moving to New Zealand. So um, I'm always interested to know, how, how, did you, how did you get into teaching? So I, I, was, I did economics at university and I ended up writing my dissertation on um, the economics of education. Um, and I sort of got into the, the background and the history of vouchers. Um, so there's a kind of a- academic history there, Milton Friedman and others. Um, and, and that led me to, to more kind of less academic work around the policy of choice in schooling. Um, and I was a kind of structures girl back then. It was all about incentives and how you get better teachers into the profession and school choice and the rest of it. And so I went, ended up working in um, at policy exchange, think tank in London, because they'd done a lot of work on school choice. So this um, is the was, think tank set up by Michael Gove, is it? Michael Gove was involved yep. with the establishment, yep. yeah. Um, and um, yes, of course, it became, that work went on to be influential for him. Um, and so I actually went there to work on their economics test, but I managed to move sideways into education because that was my interest. And um, I think from a really early age, I'd been exposed to some of the injustices in the school system. Yeah. So I grew up in, in Wales, um, went to a rural village school where we did lots of Welsh language and um, and um, you know my parents were sort of active on the governing body. And, and at some point, um, Fortunately, I have an older brother and he, my parents decided they liked him to try out for a selective school um, in Chester. And we'd been told all through schooling that we were top of the class, you know, great readers and all the rest of it. So mum and dad assumed that everything was fine. And then, of course, he went and was benchmarked against um, a wider cohort outside of our little Welsh village. And it turns out we weren't top of the class, really. We were we were somewhere God knows, in the middle of the bottom. And because of that, I was suddenly hauled out of this primary school and sent 30 miles away into England to another school. And I had never worked so hard in my life. I spent two years think, thinking, oh my God, my hand hurts because yeah. I just had never been held to these kinds of expectations before. And that sort of um, was a lesson to me in in the importance of parents having information about, about schooling so that... Um, so that they can um, understand what's going on in school and, and all the rest of it. So, and, and um, that I think has sort of stayed with me and that's what led me into this, this field. And then of course at Policy Exchange, the last report I wrote was called More Good Teachers. Yeah. And I resolved, uh, the result of that, um, it's time I actually went and found out what was going on in schools. Yeah. Um, to be quite honest, having gone to a, for most of my school to a nice, um, girls' school in the countryside. Yeah. I used to think, what are teachers complaining about? Like, what's <laughs> all the fuss about? You know, our teacher used to sit at the front putting hand cream on yeah. while we all got on with our exercises from our textbook. Yeah. And I just didn't really understand it. So, of course, I um, had my baptism of fire at the hands of Teach First in an inner city um, uh, London secondary school teaching yeah. maths. Um, which um, I don't mind saying was probably was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. Most rewarding, <laughs> yeah. but um, you know I I was eaten alive by um, teenagers for yeah. um, the first couple of terms, and um, I 
and and then of course after a couple of years there I I chose I actually came out of the profession for a bit then I went back in and chose my school very very carefully I ended oh up, yeah yeah um at a school that um actually where where Daisy Christodoulou was working she we talked about it and and I'd decided the behavior management system sounded like they were on point yeah and um I loved the sound of the knowledge curriculum they were doing there so and uh, of course very similar children totally different ethos and expectations and I was um putting as just as much effort in and being so much more productive. So that was so a real lesson. That would me. have been a, an ARC school, is that right? No, it was an independent academy at the time. Lord okay. Nash um, uh, was running, had, over, had taken over this failing school. It was a classic Labour um, early um, sponsored academy yeah. um, and a real success story. Although Jerry, the, the, uh, the principal that was there at the time, did go on to work for ARC um, at John Keats. Um, it's interesting you say about the... You just reminded me, and this is a little bit off topic, but I've got one of the um, one one of the people on Twitter that often interacts with my tweets. So I'll be I'll be, I'll be uh, tweeting a blog about cognitive science or something, and they want they they always want to engage me in this discussion about Wales and Welsh language instruction. And their their view, this person's view, is that it's a terrible thing, that it's it, it, um, it's it, it's the cause of all the problems in the Welsh education system, the fact that, um, uh, that, that all this instruction has to be delivered in Welsh. And I just don't know anything about it, so I can't really comment on that um, side of things. But, uh, yeah, he, he gets quite animated and, and tries to draw me into that discussion. Well, it's, it's not dissimilar here in New Zealand, of course, because um, Te Reo Māori, the um, native language, is on the rise and there's, there's lots of effort to um, reintroduce it having yeah. it having been almost it's actually a very similar story to Wales and New Zealand tends to look to Wales as a as a an example of a country that's made it mandatory yeah um and like you know this is what we ought to be doing we haven't made it mandatory in New Zealand yet because um, they've rightly recognized that there just isn't the enough teachers to do it justice yeah. Um, so yes, I get drawn into this a little. Um, people try to get me drawn into that in New Zealand, um, and I, to be brutally honest, I don't feel particularly strongly um, in either direction. I can see that um, there are um, pluses and minuses, but one thing I would always caution, and is actually, if you look at the evidence from Wales, um, despite all the effort and all the hours of teaching, you know, we used to do an hour every morning, a specialist um, Welsh teacher would come in for an hour. And I, at the end of my probably five or six years at that primary school, I can count to 10. I know my colours, can sing a couple of songs. Um, it wasn't a very productive experience. Um, and all the, the data, unfortunately, to the, to the great... Um, um, uh, upset of the Welsh government and those lobbying for it actually has shown that the rates of um, people speaking the language haven't improved. Oh. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for people opting in and there yeah. being parental support for it, but whether making it mandatory actually improves things. Wales is not a success story for that, um, which is disappointing, I think. Perhaps it's the way it's taught. Possibly. Um, quite possibly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that. Well, one thing I did want to discuss. Um, so you did teach first. Um, and um, like, what did they... So uh, I've got a fairly good handle on what a PGCE course looks like because I did one myself, although it was, you know, back in 1912 or whatever. Um, 
but I'm not quite sure what it looks like in Teach First. Did you did you learn much cognitive science? Uh, it was it a little bit more kind of advanced than um, the you know. I mean, I remember learning about Piaget sta stage theories and um, all, and constructivism and all that sort of thing, and no cognitive science at all. What, what, what was the what was the balance in your teach training? Yeah, so it was very similar to what you described. So of course, you do your six weeks summer institute at that stage. It was a um, linked to Canterbury University and um, it was I remember writing essays throughout the year about Fiotsky and Piaget yeah. and you know the zone of proximal, proximal development and stuff and I, I suppose we sort of came away with a vague sense of who John Dewey was yeah um, but absolutely no cognitive science at all um, and and you'd think as math specialists there, there might have been a bit more um, chance that we'd have got some of that but we really didn't and I distinctly remember getting so it was divided you had a maths group that you would work with and a tutor and then a, a professional tutor which was a, a mixed um, people from all different subjects and I distinctly remember getting to the very end last day with our professional tutor um, reasonably elder, elderly gentleman um, who'd been taking us through holding our hands through all this theory and saying to him in front of everybody but what do I do like what do I actually do uh, and and um I and he his response was it wouldn't be right for me to tell you like this is your journey you are a professional you are you know this is gonna you're gonna shape and mold how you become a teacher and what it looks like and, and I remember sort of pushing back and saying no no but what literally what do I do like <laughs> yeah. what do I stand at the front do I stand at the door and there was absolutely no answer to that at all so of course I I then went off to meet my school and I had you know a great lovely head of maths was my kind of mentor in the school and I, I remember putting together this poster somewhere along the line I'd clutched at this straw and I had this poster and it was called um the five p's and I'd written on it someone had, I must have picked this up somewhere magpied yeah. it and you know I can't remember all of them but it was be polite and be punctual and be perseverant um, and a couple of others. And I remember him sort of slightly laughing at me when he saw me stick this on the wall next to my whiteboard. Um, but, you know, thinking to himself, well, good luck to her, you know, <laughs> give it a go. And I mean, it literally was that. Um, the, um, I mean, it was just, a sit the behavior was just such an issue in that school. Um, and the creating a culture in your own classroom. It was one of these um, Tony Blair, beautiful Norman, um, I forget the guy's name, the, the architected Norman Foster buildings. Yeah. It was one of those all glass and, you know, state of the art and all the rest of it. And the kids ran the corridor. It was, it was kind of shaped like a prison with a, with a long corridor at the front and all these yeah. classrooms off the side. And there were, it was all glass. So children could, you could see in and out and there'd be a fight in the corridor and, um, and everyone would mob to the window to go and look at it. And, and then yet you were trying to create this culture in your own little bubble in your classroom that was somehow different to what was going on outside. And as an NQT, you know, that, or as a brand new teacher, that was really was an uphill struggle and a real baptism of fire for me. Yeah. And um, it, it is, it, it is an issue. I, I worked in a school uh, a bit like that in the UK, in West London, Northwest London, um, Greenford, actually the area. Um, and um, when I first started there, and it changed a lot while I was there, I ended up assistant principal there before I moved on to a, a deputy principal. 
post. But when I started, it was very much like that, although we didn't have the nice Norman Foster building, we had shabby old buildings. And you had to set about trying to create a culture in your classroom rather than a, a school culture that benefited everybody. You had to start from scratch and try and build one in your classroom. Um, I reached for some techniques I'd learned at my previous school um, from Lee Cantor's assertive discipline, which um, was basically, it's the only discipline classroom management training I'd had. So it, it was, you could argue with aspects of it now, looking back, you know, um, 20 years distance, but it was the only thing I had. So I, I set about building a culture in my own classroom using those principles. Did you have any um, sort of classroom management training as part of Teach First? There certainly wasn't, there's, there certainly wasn't a program that I could cite back to you. You know, we were trained in yeah. this particular thing. There, there, I mean, I'd be, it would be unfair to say there was no behavior management training. There was probably a morning during yeah. our six weeks where we talked about behavior management. Um, but I, I have to say, I don't know, I took nothing away from that. You know, I remember, some years later, um, during a visit to charter schools in the US, yeah. somebody pointed out, somebody, I don't know whether they even did it or just did it or pointed it out, that um, rather than saying, um, can you lot at the back stop talking, which yeah. is what I'd spent the first year of my, probably two, three years of my teaching career yeah. saying, if you say to the class, thank you to the people, to the children on the front row for sitting so quietly, that has the same yeah. a better impact and it's you know it takes the same number of words and that you know that's just sort of I don't know something like basic neurolink NLP or something well and it's just an little uh, no so I was going to say that's an assertive discipline technique but, but little techniques like that yeah. were clearly considered beneath the kind of lecturers that we were we were going to in, uh, during our teacher training and yet they're so they can make such a big difference but there didn't seem any en emphasis on that and you had to find that stuff out for yourself if you were ever gonna get there and and it just th that just doesn't make sense to me and in no industry you know competitive industry outside of education would that be allowed to happen it just doesn't make sense and and we're not setting teachers up to succeed and uh, later in my career when we um I was involved with setting up a small family of preschools we um the one of the things that I took on and really enjoyed and kind of majored on was that we we had to set up our teachers to succeed in the classroom that was our responsibility and so you know we changed things like the term times and the teachers contracts so that they had three weeks with us we called it summer institute before the kids arrived whereas in a mainstream school you get what a couple of days if you're lucky and by the end of that you've just about worked out what your computer password is and how to uh, to fill in the register you know there's no time for looking at What's our expectations of um, walking in the corridors? How are we going to line up at lunchtime? You know, all that stuff that we um, that, that is so important to school culture and that sets teachers up, particularly new teachers up to succeed. There isn't time for in a normal school timetable. Yeah, that, that, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, that is a, an assertive discipline technique. That, and and um, the training is to so say, why would you why would you highlight to the other kids who are doing what you want that some kids aren't, why not highlight to the whole class that some kids are? That, that makes, that's a more positive way of going about things. And I think it goes into some of these positive behavior, um, what's it, PBIS, positive behavior something. Anyway, that's a, that, but also there were little things like, um, uh, if, if you're talking to the class and a student is off task and isn't doing what you want to do, just as you're talking to the class, walk towards them. 
and hot, nine times out of 10, they'll stop. Um, if you want a child, say, to leave the classroom and you, you go, um, uh, John, can you go my outside a second, please? And they go, well, it wasn't me that was throwing paper. It was blah, blah, blah. And you just go, John, can you go and stay? And you just repeat yourself three times, broken record technique. And so this, this, is, this is what I had when I went into a tough school in London. But um, I'd learned it at my previous school. I hadn't learned it on teacher training. I'd learned it because um, my previous school had brought it in. And when I was talking to um, Doug Lamarv, um, and I'd have loved to have had something like Teach Like a Champion then because it was much more comprehensive than, than what I had at the time. And as Doug would say, Teach Like a Champion isn't a book about um, discipline and classroom management. There's two chapters on that. And there's you know lots of chapters on all sorts of other things about how to cognitively engage students and things like this. Um, but I would have loved um, a, a book of strategies and techniques that I could have used. And I think that's what accounts for the extraordinary success of Teach Like a Champion. Uh, uh, Doug would say, you know, it, it, there's a gap in the market there. No one is, no one is, as you said, like, what do I do? People want to know, what do I do? Doug said, what do I do if, you know, um, you know, as a teacher, you, you say, well, what do I do if this happens? And what do I do if this happens? And what do I do if a student says this? And there's a gap in a market, he, he thinks, for uh, guidance and advice that's practical like that, that just simply tells teachers, here's some strategies that you can use. Yeah, and he came along at the time when, you know, the technology was ripe for, for sharing videos. And yeah. that's so powerful. Um, yeah, I, I, um, as I said, I, after my initial experience, I had some time out and I did get to go to the States and see some of these schools like the Uncommon Schools. And I obviously came across his book, which was a real game changer for me. And so uh, having read that, I was itching to get back into school and try out these techniques. Yeah. Um, and I remember watching a... Um, in a charter school in, in New Orleans that took on children from about age 14, 15, who were, you know, had reading ages of six and seven and this sort of thing. That was their specialist um, area, the, the top of schooling. And um, I was there over the summer. So they were doing their kind of summer training for brand new teachers. And this guy who was younger than me, even more wet behind the ears than I was, had this room of probably 20 boys who had all been failing in their previous schools and he they just ate out the palm of his hand and the whole you know the whole half hour lesson was so slick and tight and I remember going to talk to him afterwards and he divulged to me that this was like the second time he'd stood in front of a classroom and that was just a lesson in to me in you can be taught to do this stuff um and set up to succeed in these tough environments, but I just hadn't been by my training. And I, and I suppose it's, it, it would be unfair of me to, to suggest that things haven't changed. I believe in, you know, I was an 08 in, for Teach First training, that's, that since then, um, some of that training has improved and things like Doug Lamont's um, um, book is used and there's much more practical stuff in the Teach First training. I, I don't, I, I'm not up to date on it, but certainly in the UK, um, I believe things improved. And it, it, it emphasizes the importance of school culture. If you can teach your second lesson like that, like if you move into one of these schools, like the one you mentioned, the Norman Foster one, your second lesson, you haven't really established yourself. It takes you at least a term to build that culture within your single classroom if you're going to do anything with those kids. Whereas if you've got a school culture that you can slot into um, and you can just get on with teaching, I think that's the, that has to be the goal for um for, for school leaders really uh, and if if you if you are leading a school where everyone has to uh, establish themselves and 
um, you know, get a good reputation and all this sort of stuff. I think you're doing something wrong because we know, I reckon, how to do this now. Um, what? So, so you you were so you you did you were at policy exchange. You did uh, teaching. You left teaching for a while. You went back into teaching. But now you're in New Zealand. So, could you just uh, explain how how that happened? Well, um, we having set up some free schools with a with an old colleague actually from um, policy exchange um, and that was a really interesting journey of obviously made it possible by the free school policy in the UK um, which um, and, and that was primary schools because I'd got sick of meeting 12 year olds who couldn't read and didn't know their yeah. times table so I was fascinated well what's going on in primary <laughs> schools and so I um, most of my teaching actually was with the, the youngest age group five and six because when you start a free school you've only you know if you start from the bottom you fill up and so that was another interesting process because I was trained um, having know nothing about early literacy and of course in the UK you're just a teacher you get your QTS you can teach you might have got it in maths but it means you can teach primary school as well which you know it seems like a bit of a stretch to me but anyway yeah. um I but we organized for um to have sounds right training so sounds right is one of the um governments approved um, phonics training providers in the UK yeah. and you know that was I think uh four or five days of intense professional development and at the end of it you sit an assessment um, if you don't pass it then you haven't passed the course and you do a follow-up assessment some weeks later and I mean by far and away the best professional development I've ever had as a teacher it was brilliant you know the guy running it John was an, a real expert and I went from somebody who and the first idea how to teach early reading to children to someone with reasonable confidence and you know the, and then of course you get you start doing it with with children from all kinds of different backgrounds and you see how powerful it is. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was a wonderful experience. And um, we were working on um, developing the knowledge rich curriculum to go alongside that with great support from Civitas um, with the, the work they'd done some years ago. Um, and then um, think, um, it's a sort of great sadness to me really, but um, my, uh, my colleague setting all that up was elevated to the House of Lords. Oh. And, um, and so um, uh, we, we had this kind of change of leadership and um, slightly different visions. So it seemed like um, we, it was a good opportunity to seize the moment and go and live abroad, which is something my husband and I had always wanted to do. Um, and for various reasons, New Zealand appealed. We're sort of country bumpkins, really. So it was nice to get away from London, but still be able to do the kind of work that I enjoy in a capital city. Yeah. Um, so I came to New Zealand wondering what on earth I would be able to contribute to education here. Because, of course, when I was at Policy Exchange looking at OECD data back in the 2000s, New Zealand was regarded as leading the world, the envy of the world. You know, in 2000, when they first did PISA, we were third reading and maths up there with Singapore and I think Canada and Finland those sorts of countries so um, I naively thought well golly I, I don't think that New Zealand has a lot to learn from me and um, and then since I've been here I've realized of course that we've done nothing but decline and New Zealand has the worst educational inequity of all the English-speaking comparator countries um, we've got um, really low levels of literacy for uh, in the Pearl schools and um, the place is sort of in the grip of child what I've referred to in this my most recent book as child-centered orthodoxy and and of course 
you know, that's what I was in the grip of too in my first few years of teaching until I got the chance to step back and do some more reading and read and visit other schools. And, you know, books like Daisy's Seven Myths and blogs like yours have been so valuable in the process of coming to understand where these ideas come from or where the flaws are in them. Yes, um, there's, a, there's a few things that we, we use Sounds Right at my place. So we're an independent school in uh, country Victoria and we introduced Sounds Right a few years ago. We started, um, we, we'd had um, Letters and Sounds, you know, the free government uh, program in the UK. We'd, we'd used that, we'd used those materials, but we decided we wanted to go to something a little bit more uh, structured. Uh, and John has actually come out to visit us. So um, the guy that trained you, so that's quite nice, quite nice little connection there. Um, I think it's, what's really interesting is you touch on a, a key issue, which I think we'll probably return to uh, as we talk of cause and effect, um, which I think a lot of people uh, get a bit confused about, but um, first of all, it's really hard in an education system to identify what has caused this effect because you're not running uh, a an experiment you've got no control condition you've got no um other new zealand where you didn't do these things and you can see compare the two um so it's very hard to identify cause and effect but one of the things that is important is is the fact that um new zealand's results have declined um, and uh, you can make a, you can make a similar point about finland and finland's results since about 2006 have precipitously uh, decline. They're still above average, um, but then comparing countries just on that sort of raw measure doesn't seem quite right because countries have different demographies. Um, they have, you know, different histories, different levels of wealth, for instance. So the fact that one country performs above another doesn't necessarily tell us a huge amount, uh, but the direction of travel tells us a lot. But we have a lot of people still, even now, um, looking to Finland and trying to learn from Finland and what Finland are doing. And sometimes what Finland have introduced in the last couple of years. So people will talk about, oh, Finland have introduced phenomenon-based learning and we should look at that because Finland's so successful. But of course, they've introduced that towards the end of a decline. So we can't possibly say that that initiative, the phenomenon-based learning, is associated with the, the reasons why Finland was successful in 2006. And I, I would imagine that similar arguments um, play out in New Zealand, that if we look at what New Zealand is doing now, if anything, that's associated with its decline uh, in results. Um, and if we want to know why it was so successful in 2000, we'd really have to look at what it was doing in the 80s and 90s. Uh, is that a fair call? I think absolutely. Um, the, the common one these days is, well, somebody's just um, apparently in Singapore, they are trying to free things up a little bit and have a bit more opportunity for children in class to do collaboration and problem solving and critical thinking and, and the rest of it. Um, and and yet they, they are currently still sort of up there on the top of the tables. But of course, um, it's this pendulum swing business. And yeah. as um, lots of us will concede, you know, there, there, there is a role for doing some practice of the final performance, um, doing some problem solving, perhaps or problem uh, project-based learning at the end of a term or a unit of work, um, but it's getting that balance right. And, um, you know, if, if I were running the Singapore education system, yeah, I might be prepared to move a little bit in that direction, but New Zealand is already so far <laughs> 
gone in that direction in terms of our official sort of policy and discourse that um, it, it, it's just not a relevant comparison. And um, the, 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 I mean, there's lots of interesting and strange things about the New Zealand system. You know, when you move to somewhere like New Zealand, lots of things seem really the same. And it's like, oh, it's just like being in the UK. And then every so often, something would completely take you by surprise. Um, and you realize that it's totally not the same here. And that, you know, the curriculum's one of them. And it's, it's um, so in New Zealand, it's, well, it's referred to somewhere along the line. I think it was a, a, a minister and when it was introduced, referred to it as a world leading curriculum. Oh, and that really stuck. <laughs> Um, so that's mostly what you get told if you criticize it. Well, it's a world leading curriculum. <laughs> and um, there's this drink in New Zealand. It's very Kiwi thing called LMP. Yeah. Um, it's not really sold outside the country. I'd not come across it before, but it has, it's a kind of ironic, um, there's a bit of a joke tagline to it. It's, um, they call it world leading in New Zealand. <laughs> um, and of course, that's exactly what the curriculum is. <laughs> you know, people in New Zealand seem to think it's world leading. I'm not quite sure that many other countries do. I think perhaps in Scotland, which is having its own... Um, oh, well, they have a curriculum, have a curriculum for curriculum excellence. For excellence. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this little club of countries like Scotland, um, unfortunately, Wales, I understand, um, New Zealand, um, increasingly Finland that sort of go around encouraging one another in this direction um, and yet their trajectory suggests that it may not be um, the best idea. Yeah and, and just going back to that point about Singapore just to like it's just logically wrong to say Singapore are very successful which is true uh, they're introducing critical thinking therefore if we want to be successful we need to do that I mean critical thinking well, like critical thinking is a big thing so like uh, all um, education systems to some extent teach it and I would suggest that critical thinking is a key outcome of like a good science education or a good history education or whatever but let's say they're introducing like more of a focus on uh, open-ended activities or whatever so whatever it is that they're doing and say well we ought to do that because Singapore's really successful well whatever they're introducing now can't possibly have been the cause of their past success like that would require time travel it's but people make that um argument all the time oh this successful system is changing its curriculum so we ought to do that well wait a bit we don't know the effect yet of, of that change we don't know what that's gonna gonna do um one thing you said about things being um the same and i want to get into this report so the report that um that we're talking about here which we haven't properly introduced yet we just started talking about it is um uh, New Zealand's education delusion, uh, and that's available on the New Zealand um, initiative website uh, for anyone to look at. And I've got up in front of me at the moment from that report a graph, and it's very reminiscent of a graph uh, from the UK. So things being the same, um, a graph I saw a few years ago. Um, it was I think Rob Coe put it together, and it shows the uh, relentless increase in GCSE grades, um, sort in the noughties, so under the previous government uh, in the UK, um, mapped against the relentless decline in um, performance in international assessments. And you've got basically the same graph, but for New Zealand. So you've got um, the percentage of school leavers uh, achieving NCEA level two plus, which is obviously means something in New Zealand, which doesn't, doesn't quite, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what that is, but it's obviously a key measure. But you've got that mapped against again, a relentless decline in PISA maths, reading, science, and science. So 
we build these systems um, and we think that we're going great because our internal measures suggest that things are going great. But something's gone funny with our internal measures because then when, when we do a check outside with some external measure, it doesn't look so good. And so that, that's, a, that's quite an important role that these external measures like Pisa and Tim's play. Yes, if it weren't for the international metrics, um, Pearls, Pisa and Tim's, I would really, really struggle in New Zealand to get any traction about the idea that we've got a problem. Um, and that's a bit frightening, actually, that we're so reliant on um, external measures. The NCA, my previous report was on NCA, which is our national qualification, was introduced in the early 2000s to replace what was a somewhat outdated, um, very um, hierarchical um, norm-based system where basically half of kids got to the end of school and were told, uh-uh, you failed, go and be a tradie or do something non-academic. And it was an yeah. arbitrary 50% cutoff and there were lots of problems with it. So it was, it was ripe for a redesign. But what we got, NCA, is um, the most child-centered assessment system you could ever imagine. Um, so it's entirely standards-based. Um, which created its own um, issues at the time. So there were wildly fluctuating pass rates from year to year. Um, so effectively, they reintroduced some norm referencing by the back door. Um, they call it profiles of, ex of, of, of expected performance, which is a kind of um, backwards way of norm referencing things, but without calling it that. Yeah. And they, um, th the, the qualification is not standardised or... Um, rigorously assessed. So it is entirely possible, and plenty of children do, to pass through the entire thing with flying colours, um, having never sat an external assessment, so no external assessment, only internals, and having never sat an assessment in English or maths, because you can get your kind of core literacy and numeracy credits, as they're known, through all kinds of, um, you know, you can make a poster on Google, uh, on, on Word, which has got six words in it, and that'll get you um, a third of your literacy credits. You know, so it's not English, it could be a standard from any subject. And it's all, the whole thing is designed to encourage cross-curricular learning, so integration across subjects. It's, um, it's competency-based, so it assesses skills. Um, and so I think in a subject like history, um, because our curriculum is completely empty of content it's entirely skills based um sorry just to diverge slightly there so to so just to put listeners um in the right frame of mind to understand what i'm saying by this the whole of the curriculum for social sciences in new zealand so that means history geography economics what they call social studies and politics all of that um for the whole of primary and secondary school fits on one A4 piece of paper. Gosh. Yeah, so it's completely vacuous. It's entirely skills-based. Um, and there's like a, a degree of progression from when you're in year one to year 13 about you know the skills, but there's no content. So it's entirely up to your school. So it's a complete lottery, how much geography and what geography and how much history and what history you get. And so the assessments for those, that obviously makes it really difficult for examiners writing um, external exams, because some kids do still opt to do external assessments, tests, 
Um, it's, it's, it's impossible to write a history exam when there's no curriculum, there's no syllabus. And so every year on year, the question for history will be um, something like describe the significance of, um, uh, of a historical event um, that affected New Zealand. And you yeah. can't really change that question. They change like one word in it, but it's exactly the same question year to year. So of course, children do what the incentives tell them to do, which is to um, um, memorize an answer. Right, memorize an essay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, and there's there's loads of data, and the, the examining authority are open about the fact that yeah, they read the same essay. You know, they someone will copy an essay, and then it's just regurgitated in the exam. And um, this is a product of our child-centered curriculum plus assessment system. And just to finish on that, there's no, there's absolutely nothing in primary schools. So there's no standardized assessment whatsoever. And, and so when you pop up at the ministry or, or um, in the media with that graph you described, yeah. um, people get upset because, um, because um, they say, oh, well, PISA measures things that are different to our national curriculum which is true, yeah. but the idea that our national, uh, our, sorry, our national assessment has nothing to tell us about whether kids can read or do basic maths and science is in itself a huge problem. Yeah, and PISA isn't brilliant. I mean, PISA was designed, I think, to try and demonstrate the um, superiority of constructivist forms of teaching. So the, the PISA science assessment isn't uh, it's all about applying, uh, reading graphs, applying these um, supposed skills of scientific, they call it scientific literacy or something. But of course, it turns out that in order to read graphs and apply skills of scientific literacy, it helps to know a lot of science. So the, the school systems that do well in PISA um, also tend to be the ones that do well in TIMS, which is a much more straightforward assessment of scientific knowledge. It, it doesn't work like that. You, you, you can't get good at um, scientific literacy, whatever that is without knowing lots of science. Um, and uh, I was struck by um, what you were saying with uh, the external assessments and the fact that there's a lack of them. So um, I'm, I'm, I just wanted to point out to people, I've written it down here, because you're talking about the social sciences or social studies curriculum. And I've, I've got this dot point here so people can see what this looks like. Here's a dot point from that curriculum. Uh, I think this, I don't know what year group this relates to, but understand how people record the past in different ways. So as a teacher, what do you do? How do you teach that? Anyway, external assessments. Why is a lack of external assessments um, an issue? Um, the, the major draw, driver for me is that it hampers our ability to improve. Um, as others have put it, you know, in almost every sector, measurement, accurate measurement is the precursor to improvement. Um, medicine's a good example. You know, we used to measure people's um, temperature by putting a, a hand on their forehead and getting a sense of whether they were a bit hot. And over the years, through the development of thermometers, and we got to the point where, you know, any of us can sit at home and, and measure our temperature to an accuracy of, of the you know, a tenth of a degree. And that ability to measure so accurately aids our ability to diagnose and then treat and so forth. That's just one example. And um, without reliable, transparent information, we can't know what's working and what's not. And that is a huge problem in New Zealand schools. So a, a recent government task force 
um, identified rightly that there is a real problem of low trust between the ministry and schools and between schools in New Zealand. Unfortunately, their um, solution to this problem of low trust was to advocate for yet more ministry bodies and sort of quangos to, to mediate and tell schools what to do. Um, whereas I'm saying, well, what we need is just better data. And I've seen firsthand how that transformed professionalism in the UK, because, you know, um, I did a lot of my um, preparation for going to for becoming a primary school, a primary school teacher by going and spending time in little tiny, um, you know, single form entry um, primary schools in the middle of council estates in, you know, tricky parts of London, the sorts of schools that you would never think to visit that weren't shouting about what they were doing. Mm. They didn't have kind of a high profile. And yet their results in the phonics screening test or the SATs were just remarkable for the yeah. kind of children they were teaching, you know, up there competitive with anybody else from um, um, middle-class professional families with these transient populations and lots of the EAL and the rest of it. And that was made possible by the transparency of data that we have in the UK. And um, we just don't have anything like that here in New Zealand. So of course the schools that the ministry holds up and points people towards are the ones that are doing the kinds of philosophy that they like the look of, which unfortunately is, is, is incredibly child-centered, um, project-based, um, inquiry-based discovery learning. And, and, it, and, it, and it's the head teachers who happen to be best at marketing themselves or enjoy being in the media limelight that get all the coverage. And I know there are schools out there that are brilliant at teaching Maori boys how to read but we just don't know where they are um, because we don't have that level of data. So, I mean, it's such a break on improvement. It just doesn't bear thinking about. Could you just, uh, I think I, like, could you just explain though why it's necessary for these to be external? Why we can't run internal assessments that provide this information with what structurally prevents um, schools internal assessments giving this um, data picture that where we could find which schools were more successful than others and and things like that? Well, of course we do, you know, we do in New Zealand, we have these things called PATs, which schools can buy into. Yeah. Um, and some of the, some of them do on uh, different um, intervals. And they, um, they are national tests and they are standardized, but they're not mandatory. And the data isn't shared um, with, you know, your, the equivalent of your local authority or the government. Um, so we don't have that, inf they're, they're, so you, you can't go onto a website and say, which is what you can do in the UK, uh, sorry, in England, yeah. and I believe in Australia. Yeah, you can. And, you know, put, and, and put in your school and, and um, say, you know, I want to find other schools with similar intakes to mine that are just better, better at us than uh, at maths or whatever. Yeah. And so, so that collaboration isn't facilitated because we don't have that level of um, sharing of data. And of course, the other, the other problem the lack of data creates is that parents don't know what's going on in school. And, it, you know, one of the things that horrified me uh, when I was teaching is it's 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 frighteningly easy to fob parents off with, you know, oh, you know, we're do he's doing all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. When you know deep down that if this was your child and he was 
reading at the level that he is or um, operating, you know, his basic understanding of, of number and arithmetic was as awful as this child is, you'd be up in arms. You wouldn't be saying it's okay, but you know, you're at parents' evening and you've got a pile of parents in the line. So you, it's very, it's too yeah. easy for parents to be fobbed off. You have to have some level and of transparency and the lack of it is what entrenches disadvantage because teachers are comparing their, um, they're com they're comparing with the cohort in front of them but if yeah. you're in a disadvantaged community that's not a representative sample nationally and also school choice it's all, all very well to say let's give parents school choice and and this might be a kind of um for one of a better word neoliberal approach to improving standards let's let's give parents a choice and then the market will sort things out but in the absence of clear data what what on what basis are parents making this choice um, and yeah. they're probably going to be making it on the basis that someone has told them that this school is using a world leading approach or or something like that, because they won't have any objective data to think otherwise. Uh, look, we've mentioned a number of times um, child centred uh, teaching. Now, your thesis, essentially, and uh, obviously we've said that this is this is not a controlled experiment, so um, nothing can be proven you know, without any doubt. But your thesis, the subject of your report, which I think is fairly convincing, is that this decline in, um, in New Zealand's performance and international assessments is associated with and probably caused to a greater or lesser extent by child-centred approaches to education. So could you briefly describe what you mean by that and why you think it is the, the cause of this decline? Yeah, so... It's a no-brainer on the face of it. Every yeah. parent wants their child to be at the centre of decision-making about schooling. Um, and I'm not advocating for a, for a return to sort of grad-grind days where children sat and petrified their teacher, wrote learning things. Um, it's about getting the balance right. But unfortunately, um, in New Zealand, the, that pendulum has swung so far, um, too far. And so yeah, broadly, child-centered schooling means giving responsibility for learning to um, over to children. And the idea is that this nurtures their independence, you know, the, by being independent, by practicing being independent, they will become lifelong independent learners um, and that they will be motivated and sort of active response, responsible participants in the learning process. And, um, one thing that's really gone, to, they've gone to town with in New Zealand is this idea that if children choose what they learn and the curriculum is molded by their interests and what they find relevant and engaging, then that will um, raise their motivation and, and they will learn more as a result. Um, and um, it predicts that this will create what we want, what we all agree we want, which is critical thinkers and lifelong learners yep. and self-motivated, all the rest of it. However, the trouble is that... Um, by doing, by prioritizing those competencies and being so um, agnostic about the content in some schools, and it, you know, it's not all, I'm not criticizing all schools. Some of them quietly look at the New Zealand curriculum and say, no, thanks, we'll carry on doing what we have always done, which is teach traditional not subjects and, and a knowledge rich teacher led approach. But by um, undermining knowledge and sort of sidelining it in this way, we've got to the point where um, children are leading their learning. And I mean, I, 
dare I say it, we're building modern learning environments like with like they're going out of fashion in New Zealand, you know, open plan classrooms, it's all bean bags. And I'm sort of, you know, um, my mother-in-law described to me how they were doing that in England in the 1960s. Yeah. And then they put the walls back in and we did it a bit in the 1990s and then they put the walls back in. And, and unfortunately we're doing it here in New Zealand. Yeah, you should buy, buy shares in a New Zealand company that makes partition walls. Yes, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, and sell your shares in beanbag companies. Yeah. Um, but um, so, and of course, because child-led learning is not a very um, effective way of imparting knowledge, we've, um, we've increasingly got this incentive to, to pretend that knowledge doesn't matter and to sideline it and to focus on competencies instead, because they're much more nebulous, they're much more difficult to measure. And, um, you know, Daisy Christodoulou has been so helpful for me in creating the kind of cl cl clarity about this idea that you're, um, it's a paradox, but the best preparation for problem solving is not to spend your time problem solving. And the best preparation for being creative or independent is not to spend your time in class being creative or independent. And um, the analogy that seems to hit home in New Zealand is, of course, the All Blacks, um, um, who spend most of their time not playing rugby matches in training. They're doing drills and they're doing things that don't look like a rugby match. They're in the gym lifting weights and they're doing Pilates and um, practicing strategies. Well, all, all kinds of things. I mean, you know, they they brought Doug Lamov over. Somebody reminded me on Twitter the other day. You know, New Zealand ought to understand this stuff. They, yeah. Doug Lamov has been to New Zealand to, to, to um, help train the New Zealand rugby team. He gets it. <laughs> they get it. They know that you don't spend your time most productively, mostly practicing the end goal, the performance. And yet our, our, all our a policy and discourse pushes teachers in that direction. And, you know, it's it's seductive as parents. And I talk to lots of parents write to me and, um, and they are seduced by this idea that, well, yeah, workplaces look like problem solving and collaboration. So surely schools need to do that too. And of course, the, you know, the business of 21st century and everything's got to be changed and transformed has been a huge, uh, motivator in New Zealand in this direction. Um, the New Zealand Council for Education Research, which is the, which is a statutory body that gets a government grant every year, has this kind of special position at right hand of the Ministry of Education. And they've been pushing transformation as though it were evidence-based for decades in New Zealand, really unchallenged, which is part of the problem I call out in my, um, my book. Yes. Um, and it, it really is striking. I've just, I've just, if want to read this little vignette from your book. So you, you spoke to a, a teacher, and, and the teacher is telling this, um, this story. Uh, so uh, for the last five years, our school has been involved in a ministry-funded professional development project for maths teaching. However, the facilitators have never bothered to collect any attainment data from us whatsoever. Meanwhile, it's obvious to everyone with half a brain that achievement has plummeted with many senior students struggling to add single digit numbers. The approach uses mixed ability groups and word-based problems. Explicit teaching is discouraged in favor of students sharing outcomes at the end. And when knowledge is taught, it doesn't have to be connected to the problems being solved. Teachers are told not to interfere with students' problem solving, even if they're doing it wrong, as it will diminish the student's 
status in inverted commas. We've also been told that students getting the correct answer isn't important. I find it totally shameful that this work is taking place with no regard for hard evidence. And worst of all, it's mostly in low decile schools where parents decile de schools where parents are less likely to complain. It's a real emperor's new clothes situation. However, the facilitators keep telling us that their approach is culturally sustainable. So who can argue with that? I mean, that, that sounds like an extraordinary situation. I mean, it really is. And, and I, um, you know, when I was first training, this, the quality of research, and you'll remember this, mm. was pretty awful in the UK. You know, you could get away with mostly um, qualitative stuff and um, a sort of sociological background to the education research. But happily, um, I think thanks to people like you and Twitter and um, blog, and um, these sorts of mediums, the, the profession has sort of struck back. And we have these some centers of excellence as well that have got, it's got to the point where if you try to present that kind of research, you'd probably be laughed out of a conference in England. Unfortunately, we are not there at all here. And so the quality of research is, I mean, it's so questionable, very little quantitative. The idea of an RCT is, I think most people probably don't know what a, a randomized control trial would look like. And, you know, um, so there's there's a huge journey to go on there. And yeah, I mean, that that's example from a primary school teacher. I mean, it, um, it's devastating what this yeah. does for load for. And you, you mentioned the word decile. So there's something that um, would shock listeners in New Zealand. This is just blows my mind that we still do this. To be fair to the current government, they are in the process of of removing it but funding for schools is based on what decile of community your school serves so um decile 10 schools are in the most affluent areas decile one schools in the poorest areas and of course there's a funding formula that tries to somewhat accommodate that and yeah. give more money to schools serving lower disadvantage although i don't think the um it's geared sufficiently it's it's nowhere near enough to accommodate the extra demands of educating a low decile community um but these um this isn't just like a back a thing that the ministry use in the background on an excel spreadsheet everybody knows what decile your school is it's almost like it's stamped on the sign outside oh, your school Des yeah i know it's mad utter madness yeah and every so everybody knows so people will say oh my kids go to a decile eight or there's a decile three down the road yeah, everybody knows what decile a school is at so, so i mean can you even imagine how horrible that is yeah. for for segregating kids and and driving parents in towards particular schools and yet that is the system we've had for, for decades in New Zealand and they are finally trying to come up with a better funding formula that will rid schools of these nasty labels effectively um, but yeah I mean you, you talked about how accountability and transparency and information is crucial to school choice so we in theory we have a school choice system in New Zealand but we don't give parents any information so they're making Apart from decisions the completely in the bind. And all we give them is what the decile is. So of course, they all chase after high decile schools. Yeah. Um, and then we sit around sort of wondering why we have this grave inequity in our system. I mean, honestly, there's things like that um, um, it, it, um, really baffle me. Yeah. Um, so um, you're... Um, there was one thing you said there, which I was going to pick up on, but I can't remember it. No. Oh, yeah. You said uh, if you wouldn't get away with that an education conference in, in England. I think it depends on which conference that you're talking about. I've read some pretty um, uh, interesting pieces in the 
um, MBERJ recently, the British Educational Research Journal, which um, I wouldn't say are necessarily um, strongly based on evidence or cognitive science or things like that. So I think you can kind of, uh, it depends which, which sphere, um, uh, which rarefied sphere of education research you're moving in. But um, just uh, your, your thesis that, um, which seems fairly strong to me that this child-centered, putting the responsibility on the child, problem solving, um, not telling them how to do things, essentially, approach to uh, teaching is associated with New Zealand's decline. That's been criticized by none other than John Hattie, who hails from New Zealand originally, doesn't he? What, what, what was his, um, briefly, what's his, what's his criticism of your thesis? Um, yeah, it was great to have John Hattie um, wade into the debate. I was really pleased. And um, one gathers he's really responsive, um, even though he doesn't live in New Zealand anymore, he's in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, he does engage, which is great. So it's good to have a relationship with him. Um, but his, um, it, I mean, the, his main critique seemed to be that um, there was not um, an iota of evidence for causality that, um, that child centrism was the explanation or one of the, you know, the, the main explanations for the decline. And of course, um, as John, ha you know, well knows, <laughs> demonstrating causality in education is um, the holy grail and almost all but impossible. Um, certainly when you're looking at um, a gradual move towards a philosophy over a period of decades, um, not least in a country that shuns standardized national assessment, um, so um, I certainly don't claim causality. Instead, I, you know, I argue and um, seek to persuade the reader and um, contend that um, the coincidence of this move through our national curriculum in 2007 and our national assessment um, um, in the early 2000s, um, and also the curriculum that actually came before the 2007 one, which was part of the journey to where we've got to today, um, all happen, um, it, the timings around those sort of are concurrent with the decline in PISA scores. And, and then of course I draw on, there's a chapter on the cognitive science, which um, you know very well, Greg, much better than I do, I suspect. And um, a chapter on the empirical evidence, which, um, which draws on Hattie's own meta-analysis, which was, which was um, as clear as, as things ever are in education, that when the teacher operates as a facilitator of learning rather than a leader of learning, um, outcomes are not as good with um, novices in schools. Yes. Um, uh, well, yeah, and I, I just think it's highly plausible. Like when you look at the cognitive science and, um, well, I mean, it's, it's not just, you don't need cognitive science, it's common sense. If, as in the case of the vignette that I read out, you're not teaching kids how to do maths, then, then their maths performance logically would seem likely to decline. I, you don't really need a huge amount of cognitive science, Willingham, Hirsch, or whatever to explain that. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so a uh, couple other things I just wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, um, you've been involved, and these sort of link, I think. I think these link. You've been involved... Um, in research ed. So um, I've been involved in research ed in Australia. We're on a bit of a hiatus at the moment, although uh, tomorrow we've, there's actually a conference in Perth because the Western Australians are, uh, are set free to go to these things. Um, I would have been going, but I can't. I'm, I'm here in Stockton, Victoria, not allowed to move anywhere. And um, so there's a, actually a research ed in Perth tomorrow. I've recorded my presentation for that. Uh, and you've been involved in research ed in um, 
New Zealand. So briefly, what was that like? And did you get any pushback? Because um, I've noticed that when uh, teachers um, take, you know, sorry, researchers is like a sort of grassroots movement supported by lots of teachers. Lots of teachers turn out to it uh, and find it very useful and have done in Australia. But we get a bit of pushback in Australia from, um, you know, education academics and people like that and a few conspiracy theories around what research ed is. Um, what was it like in New Zealand running it and, and what, was the, what was the reaction to and how did it land amongst teachers and others? Yeah, so that was... Um... It was a great day um, and good old Tom managed to get himself on a plane here all the way to New Zealand for a very short period of time. Um, the, um, it, we did it actually off the back of having Catherine Burbel Singh in New Zealand. We'd managed to convince her to come and speak about Michaela School. I think partly because she was, she was born in New Zealand. Um, so she has a kind of uh, link to the country. And while she was here, um, we were able to um, use that as a um, kind of, she was a keynote, a sort of yeah. keynote at, at Research Ed, and that got people interested and they came because of that. And um, we, we, I was, you know, I was overwhelmed. It was a real punt from, on my part. I had a five week old baby at the time when, it, when we actually had the event because of timings. And um, I really wasn't sure how many tickets we would sell and who would turn up. And I was, I was we had, I think, um, about 250 people turn up on a Saturday, which was brilliant. And um, things like Twitter and the um, polarizing debate is definitely not quite as bad here in New Zealand. Yeah. So we didn't have too much of, of what you describe. Um, actually the secondary teachers union, the PPTA, and were really interested in this stuff. And they've, they've followed, they had followed what's going on in Australia and the UK and were kind of engaged. Although, although the inclusion of, of the of a speaker like Catherine, who represented a, a free school from England, was a problem for them because they yeah. were in the process of convincing the Labour government that once they got in, they must close down all our charter schools, which is what is, has happened. Sorry, they didn't close them down, but they've got rid of the policy and, and brought them into the mainstream sector. Yeah. Um, so that there was a little bit of controversy about her involvement, but it was just a brilliant day. And as you say, um, you know, I'm itching to do another one. Um, and um, it may have to be virtual, but but just that process of bringing people together is is really powerful. You know, there was just a sense in the room, Every, and everybody stayed to the end, which I hadn't expected because it's a long day, you know. Yeah. Um, but there was there was enough excitement, and we we brought in a couple of international speakers. Um, I, I remember I tried to get you here, Greg, but you were <laughs> you had some useful excuse. Um, but um, yes, it's certainly something I would like to do again. And it, you know, people came out of the woodwork and that's what these things demonstrate. And I get, you know, I've, I've had a slew of emails since the launch of the, the, of the book from mostly teachers um, who are just relieved that somebody's speaking out. And, and something that has really, that frightens me a bit in New Zealand and took me by surprise is people's real fear of speaking out. It must be something to do with the fact it's such a small country and there's so few degrees of separation between people, but there's a real reluctance to be outspoken yeah. about these things. And so I think research kind of bolstered people's sense of that. And lots of people went away and began blogs and got on Twitter and things, which was great. Yeah, and I think that it's a real statement that, you know, 250, I would predict mainly teachers, although there might be some other people there, turning up on a Saturday, giving their own time. They might not be prepared to 
go out there on the media and say uh, what they think about the education system, but they're making a statement in attending an event like that. So, which leads me to my final question. So, uh, child-centered education uh, is possibly, probably likely to be leading to this decline in um, New Zealand. It's a problem in Australia. It's a problem in, um, in well, all the people I speak to across the world. So, uh, what's your solution? I mean, in, in the immediate term, New Zealand needs a corrective shift. Yeah. Um, we need um, more open conversation about this stuff. People need to recognise that there's this underlying philosophy um, that affects everything. And um, it's time we woke up to that. Um, it, this, in the specific New Zealand context, it is going to take a politician. Um, because as we know from England, in order to achieve real change and to start changing the trajectory of PISA and PEARLS and so forth, you need a minister who's prepared to make some, for want of a better word, enemies within yeah. the um, education community. And, um, um, you know, Michael Gove took on the education unions and he, he didn't mind having that fight and, and with some of the establishment. And, I, and my sense is that nowadays, lots of these ideas are established and teachers who didn't expect themselves to be comfortable with the phonics screening check or comfortable with teaching a knowledge rich curriculum to little children actually have come round to it and enjoy yeah. the professional development that goes with teaching a knowledge rich curriculum and they can see the benefits of explicit phonics in schools. So it will, unfortunately in New Zealand, it will take a politician that's prepared to take this on and understands um, the need for a real correction. So that's very specific to New Zealand. and. Um, I will continue to try and draw on you, my friends in Australia and the UK to, to, to bring that about here. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Um, I've really appreciated that. And um, hopefully at some point in the future, uh, we'll meet at a research ed conference and uh, maybe uh, you can come on the podcast again. Thanks, Cheers. Greg. It was lovely to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.